Chris, uh, as Twitter tells me, you are a frequent traveler. And I think, uh, was it last week you were in China? Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. Uh, we hosted KubeCon, ConNativeCon, China and Shanghai, where we had about 3,500 people from, you know, our community there. So it's a little bit uh, wild hosting a conference during a interesting political times, uh, you know, but uh, it was great to kind of have everyone in the same place um, in Shanghai. All right. Well, besides all the political unrest, which is a story unto itself, what impresses <laughs> me even more is I see these pictures of you that you post and it's like, yeah. uh, like it was great to get a morning run in before yeah. the, the thing. And so um, just the act of flying to China for me, really, I'm about to go to the East Coast, which is one hour off. That is going <laughs> to mess me up. And in the mornings, I'll just be like, I can't do it. So like, how can you run? How can you fly so far? Because this has happened a lot of times. I've seen you, like, you've been to Europe, yeah. you'll post a run. Obviously, yeah. you live here in Austin, Texas, you post a run. So, so are, you, are you, like, a fitness fanatic? Is this part of, like, your routine? Like, how do you fly to it's, China and be like, I want to run in the morning before the conference? It's honestly, it, it's honestly more like a life hack. Like, jet, like, you know, I think in the last three years, uh, you know, a little over three years since I helped, you know, co-found and start CNCF, I think I've cleared over a million miles, you know, all over the world you know, traveling and the jet lag and just being effective at what you do, uh, like a morning run generally like sets you uh, in a good position, in my opinion. Otherwise, I feel like completely like shit most of the day. So it's just kind of my life hack to deal with so jet you just lag. Push through. And, you get there, you're like, I'm going to get on the schedule. I'm going to go for a run. Uh, and I actually put it on my calendar too. So no one could like sneakily throw something uh, on there. Uh, so so you're dedicated. Nice. What's it like? Yeah. Was it, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of, I don't know, pollution or in China. Sometimes uh, talk about. Is, was that an issue? So there is air quality issues. Like you could find, I think there's like Twitter accounts uh, that you could follow from like Beijing or Shanghai that like tweet the kind of, uh, you know, air quality uh, uh-huh. uh, uh, every day. But, you know, honestly, I've been going to China for quite a while. And over time, it's definitely improved. Like one thing you'll notice is most of like the scooters and, you know, other, you know, kind of like tuk-tuk transportation things are all electric now. Um, you know, they have high speed rail everywhere. So like it's definitely improved over time and it's constantly improving in, in my opinion. Um, and definitely their public transportation uh, makes the U.S. just look backwards in my opinion. we got to work on that high speed rail. Eventually. Yeah, we have we'll, a lot we'll to work on that. We have, we have plenty, <laughs> plenty to work on that. All right. Well, good. Well, hey, well, first of all, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you here. And we talked about it before. I was going to try to pronounce your last name, but I'm not. So why don't you give us the both correct pronunciation and then the American pronunciation of okay, the last usually- name? Usually it is like a $20 bet with like people I haven't met before of like how to pronounce my last name and if you get it, I'll give you 20 bucks. But uh, for, uh, you know, this particular case, so the Americanized, ver, uh, you know, kind of version of the name is Anizik and the uh, Polish, you know, um, Polish Belarusian, it's uh, Anishczyk. Okay. So uh, it's uh, it's a kind of a unique last name, even in the uh, Polish uh, kind of heritage. Uh, there's not many, you know, Anishczyks out there. Um, Definitely high Google page rank on uh, people searching that last name uh, for, for me, which is a plus. Uh, you know, but it is what it is. Well, thank your parents. They're really thinking ahead. They're going to give you yeah. like a nice high page rank. That's what uh, exactly. that's what everybody wants now. It's a really yeah, unique I, last name. You own the domain too, so it's like if you own the domain of your last name, it's like you're in business. That's hard these days. Like very it's, difficult. Back then it it was much easier. Yeah, yeah, very difficult. Well, good, good for you. So, well, you mentioned it before. Um, I you know, wanted to have you on for lots of reasons. So, you are currently 
the CTO yep. of the CNCF. And we're going to get into all that before. Correct. But I think you have a you know, very interesting background. I thought we'd talk a little bit about your background. And then um, you can explain all the Kubernetes projects to us in two minutes at the end. <laughs> And it'll be uh, so super simple. easy, right? It'll be that <laughs> simple. No, we'll make plenty of time at the end to make sure uh, you can correct me and everybody else yep. that's getting stuff wrong. Uh, so, but let's start with, let's start with the simple thing, right? So how did you get into technology? What was kind of your entry point into this big world of open source and technology? It's, it's a little bit interesting. You know, I think just like uh, any uh, young kid growing up in the 80s, you know, I had a lot of exposure to video games, I had a ZX Spectrum in the house, Nintendo, so I kind of, my first foray into software was like, I love playing all these, you know, games, uh, I would like to potentially maybe like build one, right, and you know, I think yes. um, it was, uh, I think it was a time, it was a, it was a 486, it was, it was an IBM box, I think it was a 486 DX2, whatever, that we had at home, and uh, we had BASIC on it, and if you remember, there was, uh, you know, I particularly fondly remember this, is there you know, eventually got to a point where we were playing this game. It was, I don't know if you remember Gorilla.Bass. It's like this ridiculous uh, game where you kind of uh, throw bananas, you know, against another gorilla and try to, like, kill them. And uh, eventually I realized, like, I could go edit, you know, this basic, you know, script. And, right. and so you change the parameters of how fast, you know, a banana, you know, goes and how much damage it does. And so that was kind of my, like, first experience of, like, this is kind of cool. I could, you know, shape, you know, my, you know, you know, my world. And, you know, when I was younger, I was definitely more of kind of a, you know, it's a video game hermit, you know, hacking on things. But uh, that was really kind of my first exposure. Like, this is cool. This is amazing. It gives me a lot of power. And eventually what happened uh, when I got to high school, I started hacking on a bit of uh, remember Slackware back in the day, mm -hmm. you know, had all little BSD. This is old school. You had to like go buy the book, right? You bought the book and got the yeah, got CD, like, not even DVD, in the back, right? And then yeah, explained how to install it all. Discs, like not, not even like <laughs> discs. <laughs> discs. Uh, and eventually, uh, it led to me, uh, you know, contributing heavily to the Gentoo project, where I was a huge fan of kind of the port system in FreeBSD. I kind of like the custom, you know, customization, be able to compile everything from scratch. Eventually kind of became an official Gentoo contributor mm -hmm. maintainer and maintained a lot of the kind of Java packages. So is this uh, like right when you got out of college or were you actually doing this uh, beforehand? Was, uh, or? Mm -hmm. This was in college, uh, college high school uh, type transition. So I eventually just continued to contribute to Gentoo and Linux for, for many years. Uh, kind of a fun learning experience. You know, the, the sad thing is I don't run Gentoo at home anymore. It's like, <laughs> I think as you get older, you're just like, you know, I do want to compile everything from scratch. It's amazing. But like, man, I'm getting old. I just don't have time for, for that necessarily anymore. But like learned uh, a ton. And I think that community. So the coolest thing about the Gentoo community at the time was they had this thing called uh, they had the Gentoo forums and an IRC channel. Mm -hmm. And so like I was sitting there just like, you know, learning how to compile the kernel from scratch, learning how to um, compile uh, or not, not or like. I couldn't get my sound working. Like also drivers were like broken or something. And like I would jump on IRC and people I didn't know at all would essentially just respond to my questions. They would just like help me, um, you know, fix like, I don't know how this works. And within like 30 seconds, people would just respond. Like, right. I'm like, this is amazing. Like, op like open source is freaking amazing. People help you. And like, I don't have to like I'm not even asking for like anything and they're just doing it on their own volunteer basis. And I think from from that day, I was just basically 
like hooked on open source and wanted to like pay it forward ever since because like all these random people that helped me, you know, deal with like fixing freaking, you know, my, my sound drivers and learning how to compile the kernel from scratch back in those days. That's awesome. Um, so you kind of like, were almost like born in open source, at least from a technology point of view. It's like, as long as you've been doing it, you've been involved in some open source project. It sounds like. Yeah, no, definitely. And eventually, oddly, that experience led to uh, my first kind of internship and job, which I landed at IBM kind of during the first dot-com boom. So IBM had this like weird little internship program where they try to pair like, they basically try to run it like a mini startup. It was something called Extreme Blue, where like mm-hmm. they pair you with like an MBA and three engineers. And the particular internship thing that they selected me for was... Um, uh, I don't know if you remember uh, these wonderful like Tivoli set of products back in the day, oh, like Tivoli Access Manager. Oh, I remember them all. Denny Manager, Access Manager. I've I've had a, I've touched with them in my career. I've worked oh. I worked at IBM a little bit on those projects. I've competed with them. Yeah, yeah. we can go way back on Access Manager uh, and Denny Manager. Access Management never goes out of style. It's just like it, it always comes back. And some... Here we are. We're still trying to solve this problem. It's been a lot. It's been <laughs> we're like twenty five years in, and we're still working on it. Exactly. What what eventually led me to kind of IBM and, and uh, Eclipse was they were um, they were looking to build essentially graphical tooling to model you know their policies and test them before they're like potentially fully you know deployed in production. So they're like, hey, we're starting to you know base you know uh, a lot of products in Eclipse at IBM to kind of unify the developer experience. Uh, we would like someone to work on that. I had a ton of kind of open source experience already, so that's why they ended up hiring me and. Then I got a, kind of got involved into contributing to Eclipse-related stuff, right? Fixing different aspects of the Eclipse IDE. Uh, they eventually hired me full-time to kind of work on the uh, two aspects of Eclipse. One was the uh, what was called the plugin development environment. So this was like the tools that people use to build actual plugins and extend Eclipse. So like, hey, I want to build like a, I don't know, these days like a Rust-based mm-hmm. you know, IDE on top of Eclipse. So we would provide the tools for people to, to do that. And then I was also heavily involved in kind of um, low-level uh, JVM uh, type things. So if you, if you remember, Eclipse had this notion of plugins, right? Of and uh, uh, I don't know if you remember, there used to be a technology called OSGI, which basically brought uh, modular class loading to to Java, right? So you know, by default, uh, I guess things have changed a little bit now with kind of uh, the work that's gone in, in in Java modules. But you know, mostly back in the day, you just had this huge linear you know, class path and like, you know, crap, I have two versions of like <laughs> commons logging on the class path. Like what's going to happen in production? I'm screwed OSGI and, and uh, basically solve for that problem. And we had, we helped adopt it uh, at Eclipse officially, I think like a long time ago, but we eventually used that plugin model to have modular class paths. So were you there? Like was, I can't remember the, the lineage. So Eclipse was started by IBM and then they spun it off as a foundation or vice versa. Was, like how, how did uh, that work? Uh, Eclipse started actually from, uh, an acquisition from a small company called OTI. They're like a bunch of crazy, I don't want to say jaded, maybe they're jaded now, but they're like a bunch of small talkers. So okay. like small talk, they build, uh, you remember all like the visual so aid. They are opinionated. <laughs> That's what we need to know. That's how you say it. Small talkers, opinionated people. Exactly. And so, but they actually, like, if you go back to small talk, a lot of the folks, like they built amazing tools, like, Absolutely. right. And so, 100%. Like, yeah. Eclipse came a lot of from that small talk yeah. heritage. So IBM picked up a company out of Ottawa called OTI, Object Technology International, and they decided to open source all of you know that technology, which became Eclipse. They eventually started a 
the, it was called the Eclipse Consortium, but eventually became the foundation to kind of build and unify the industry around this specific set of tools. Because honestly, like everyone was building their own IDE. It was just insane. Like, you know, how, how, why does everyone have to build their own editor infrastructure, kind of like how to visualize things, their own debuggers? You know, if you remember back in the day, like, it, like MetroWork, there's a, a Borland, there's a, like a plethora Absolutely. of companies out there that all did it. And then Eclipse came around and most of the industry standardized on, you know, Eclipse-based Eclipse, offerings yeah. and like destroyed the tooling industry. Like, oh, mm -hmm. well, let's say, let's call it level, leveling the playing field. Yeah. Uh, they, well, like, <laughs> as I remember, like there was this point where no matter what product you were building, especially if it required some custom development, the first thing you yeah. would do would be to build a plugin, right? You would take, yeah. you would like have like identity management being yeah. you know, a prime example. It sounds like you got in there. You'd say, okay, someone would say, go get Eclipse and then let's build yeah. a plugin to do whatever yeah. it is, the thing they want. So they ended up with like, I don't even know how many there are, hundreds, thousands. I mean, there was just plugins yeah. everywhere. That was the de facto strategy for it, the entire industry for a while. And honestly, like it worked really well. I think Eclipse completely changed the tooling industry. And, you know, you know, you know I think tools are, are almost like it's like a religion for developers. Like, you know, it's just they have their choices and they're very opinionated in them. Uh, and evol it evolves over time. And what's interesting is like my whole experience with Eclipse, like I probably spent a decade of my career basically quote unquote, fighting against the, 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 the great Satan of open source, right? You know, Microsoft at that time. Right. And if you look at how things now are, like, for example, you look at the latest Stack Overflow survey results, it's like, everyone loves VS Code, everyone loves Microsoft. Like, it's just completely changed how, uh, I think the tooling industry and the attitudes have changed where some of us who kind of grew up in those, you know, let's say, you know, uh, wars of, you know, .NET versus the JVM, you know, Microsoft versus tools and, yeah. and so on. It's just completely. Well, it's kind of uh, come full circle. You're right, because I didn't think about it. I guess VS Code is usually cited as like one of the most popular, you know, tools that people yeah. use. And it is like, I think if we had gone back and said 2005, the most yeah. popular IDE or editor yeah. would be visual. Uh, people would, <laughs> would have laughed. They would have just said, yeah, what are you crazy? Yeah. And it'll be from Microsoft. So I don't, it's, yeah, this is interesting. It's funny that, how actually, that works out. The funny thing about what people don't realize with VS Code, at least, is there there actually is heritage from Eclipse. So the old original team that helped build Eclipse, uh, uh, mostly out of Zurich, like uh, if you're familiar, like Eric Gamma, one of the Gang of Four folks, and he had this kind of amazing team out there that did uh, Java-based tooling and built most of the kind of ID for Java-specific stuff for Eclipse, which was one of the best things. He was recruited at Microsoft a long time ago to kind of start building web-based you know, tooling and so on. And a lot of those original folks that helped build VS Code and see how popular it is today's, I think, came from that. All the experience they had uh, at Eclipse building tools for a huge development community. So it's kind of a weird factoid that people don't. Uh, Interesting. It's the same know. people. They just kind of move around between companies, right? So and maybe, yeah. maybe it'd be time for them to rotate to somebody else. And then we'd be like, oh my gosh. It's a, well, you I know, you. VS Code, I think, is unfortunately here to, to stick around. Like they built a great. Uh, tool. Uh, it eats up maybe a little bit too much memory, uh, but you know, hey, it is what it is. Uh, and they're having like, I mean, I use it now on a daily basis for most things. And the, the plugin ecosystem, the advantage that Eclipse had for many, many years, yeah. VS Code is just like they're having plugins for everything. People are writing extensions like 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 wild. So yeah, well, you hit it. I mean, the key is not to get so overwhelmed that your IDE becomes this massive memory hog, and then somebody comes uh, out with something lighter, right? That seems to be what plays out. But I like it. I like Visual. I mean, I use it. You know, probably yeah. not every day, but you know, probably once a week. I'm inside <laughs> of it doing stuff. But you know, you kind of touched on it before. But uh, you know, being very technical, I always like it when you. Uh, you know, so what's your opinion as developers, as customers? Like, wh how did that go? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I think, 
you know, being the person, one of the people that was like leading the plugin development of Arbor Eclipse is you have a very uh, short, you know, feedback cycle. Essentially, like if you mess anything up or you change anything in the ID of what people expect, you get like basically hate mail immediately. And and back in the day, like, uh, you know, we're a little bit we're a little bit old school and we're using if you remember Usenet, like we use news yeah. groups, right? That's how, you know, like, you know, discussion was done back That's in right. the day. Before Slack, we had it hard. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And people, uh, you know, we would just make small changes or break something. Maybe instead of like, uh, instead of like, you know, uh, we would introduce rounded corners instead of like, you know, uh, rectangular corners and people would just like flip their shit and be like, this is unacceptable. Like it needs to be a configurable setting. So, but the, the experience of that, the, the short feedback cycle and, and just having the pressure of, of, you know, you can't, when you're lower on the stack, you just can't break people. Right. Yeah. Like, so I have a lot of sympathy for people who work on like browsers or low level parts of the stack that like, A, you have to support backwards compatibility for tons of things and you just can't break people and developers as like customers, especially for open source stuff, which generally they don't pay for, tend to like have lots of demand. <laughs> so, yeah. but it's a, it's a fun experience. No, it definitely is. I mean, it's a super passionate user base, which is good and bad, like you just said. So are you still involved with Eclipse now? Are you still like on the, you know, working with them? Like what's happening out there with Eclipse? A little bit. Like, you know, I've, uh, you know, you know, I, I was a maintainer developer for many, many years. Eventually I was elected uh, on their board of directors to kind of represent uh, the maintainers and developers of the community, you know, uh, kind of lots of history there actually help them move from, uh, if you remember the CVS version to Git migration, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, good times, good old days, uh, help with that. And, um, I'm still, uh, t- uh, technically on the board of directors. I'm generally, you know, uh, helping find them, basically help them find ways to kind of, uh, expand their original mission and more, you know, collaborate with, you know, potentially stuff that we're doing in the cloud native computing foundation. Right. So, uh, Eclipse just recently got a new project, I think contributed from, um, Red Hat and IBM, that are they're doing like Kubernetes, Kubernetes based tooling, okay. right? For okay. uh, Eclipse, um, and and honestly, uh, Eclipse is a lot larger than I think people realize. Like a lot of people think it's just Java IDE, but like they have uh, technology around uh, IoT related stuff. They have automotive technology. It's kind of like the Linux Foundation in some way, where there's all these sub foundations. Eclipse has a bunch of these little things, but you know, it's like a brand, like people like Eclipse will be forever associated with Java ID, no matter how much they try to change that, uh, brand. That's just like the, like, like there's not many organizations that have escaped that maybe like, like Apache, you know, for a while was, yeah, it's just a web server. Right. But you know, they got the crazy Hadoop ecosystem grown. So people now think, you know, Apache is more than just that. And, And unfortunately Eclipse is not there yet, but it is more similar to the like Apache foundation and Linux foundation, which, host a variety of different projects, not just, not just developer tools. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Well, that's a clip. So you did all this at IBM and then yep. it sounds like you decided to start your own company. Is that, yeah. uh, so what, what like brought that on? Like what's it's called? Uh, I didn't never heard of it. So sorry. Code yeah. nine. What was the story of code nine? Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, back in the day, like, uh, sometimes it was common for companies to pay for like, uh, like a business degree, MBA type type situation. And so I was, you know, you know, working full time and got accepted to this program that IBM had that like, Hey, we'll pay for part of your, you know, business degree while you work. I'm like, sweet. You know, I just student loans. I'm like, Hey, finally, someone's going to pay for something, mm-hmm. uh, in my life. It seems like a good deal. Uh, generally don't recommend it because you like doing a degree full time while also kind of working full time is, is, is not fun. My life was, you know, hellish for a little under two years, but part of that experience, uh, in business school was like, 
you know, they all teach you, you know, kind of the basics, like they basically convince you that you could start your own company. It's going to be great. And eventually what happened was, um, you know, I had enough time at IBM and, uh, one of my buddies who also worked at the Eclipse project, uh, Eclipse project, uh, Jeff McCaffer was kind of one of the original, uh, you know, authors were like, you know, we got hit up all the time for, uh, support issues. Like people would email us directly, like companies, oil companies, all sorts of random financial companies like, Hey, like, can you build this for us? Can you support us? Um, and at that time, um, you know, IBM didn't really have a support business for uh, Eclipse or like, we only care if you write like just huge checks for us. Like don't, you right. don't even come to us if it's smaller. And for some reason, like, you know, Jeff and I were like, you know, let's, I think it's time to do something new. Like let's, let's just try it. And so we quit, we started a company basically called code nine. It was a small kind of eclipse based consulting shop where we we're going to build some products. Uh, eventually we merged, um, with a, with another company called eclipse source. But like the funniest story I, I kind of remember with that experience is like, we literally, uh, we, we quit that first, first month and we were still like doing our normal job of like, you know, running these projects at Eclipse, maintaining them. Right. And so like the people at IBM were like, uh, so you're basically like doing the same thing now, but not getting paid for, for it. I'm like, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that's kind of how it works. But eventually the first couple of months we started to get our consulting contracts and agreement. And like, it was, it was just a learning experience because both of us really had no idea what we we're doing uh -huh. at the time. Uh -huh. And, you know, there was this kind of meeting I remember with, uh, uh, it was a large oil and gas company that was using, they had this crazy Eclipse IDE thing to like manage uh, and visualize oil well, well, visualize ground to figure out seismic data to see where they could drill and stuff. It was kind of an amazing uh, tool they built, but they wanted some support on it. And we're sitting in this meeting and we're like, like, so, so like, you know, like, what do you charge? Like, you know, it's like, I was like, oh, like, crap. Oh, like, oh. we're like, oh, crap. We didn't discuss what our hourly rates would be. And like, you know, eventually we gave them some, some number, right? And, and, and they didn't flinch. They're like, yeah, no, no, no problem. And we're like, crap. Like, we, you know, we got, <laughs> we, we, got we, we got, we got fleeced because they didn't even have to like get like approval for anything. They just immediately said, yeah. uh, okay. So it was a fun experience. You know, we decided to completely bootstrap, uh, -huh. uh everything and go to the venture route. Uh, you know, eventually this effort became Eclipse Source. You know, at the time it was kind of popular to name companies like something source. There was spring source. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Our, I forgot about that. Mm -hmm. uh, on the Java side. And, uh, it was great. Like we had lots of customers all over the world. Uh, Google was one of our kind of early clients when, uh, uh, you know, I don't know how much you're familiar with like Google runs kind of in this huge mono repo that they have internally. And, uh, they're a huge eclipse shop at that time. And, you know, they would check out this like ginormous, like, you know, Java, you know, free <laughs> with all of its dependencies. And they're like, yeah, Eclipse is running pretty slow. Like it, it's, you know, it's taken a while to do type inference and all this other stuff. I'm like, yeah, cause you have this huge monorepo. Like, why do you, why are you checking out the source for everything? So we actually work with them to like, you know, optimize, you know, different aspects of Eclipse to be better. But, um, you know, eventually what happened there is, uh, we had a, a competing company, uh, out there that, uh, you know, Google eventually picked up, um, mostly cause they had, uh, uh, experience with, uh, God, it's all these old technologies today. So I don't know if you remember something called Google. It was a GWT thing. It was Google web, web toolkit. It was like you would write Java and it would cross compile to JavaScript and Dude, magic. I think I vaguely uh, remember this. Yeah. Uh huh. This was one of the many like cross compiling efforts of Java. Yes. <laughs> yeah. This was, this was like the days before like Firebug and like, like Chrome dev to like, now it's like you have some fancy JavaScript IDs and debuggers and conditional breakpoints. Well, back in the day they had none of that, right? Mm -hmm. Fire, I think, Firebug was just becoming a thing and 
it was a kind of a clever way where you could actually use the advanced Java debugging utilities and get like a web-based ID. The downside is like we thought Google was going to kind of pick us up, but they decided to pick up our, our you know, oh, competitors who had this brutal, brutal moment. No, exactly. Had this freaking GWT technology and expertise. They're like, all right, whatever. Uh, you know, the company kind of grew eventually in, you know, um, this kind of new merge, you know, entity they had that we called Eclipse Source. We kind of got acquired by this a, a German company. And eventually I was basically traveling all over the world, going to Germany all the time, trying to, you know, build a, essentially a product based business that, you know, inherited from mostly a consulting services company, mm-hmm. uh, around Eclipse. And I just eventually got uh, a little burned out and, you know, Red Hat approached me and they're like, you know, we do a lot of open source. We're building out, you know, our <laughs> Come <experts>. over here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're, you know, we need someone to help run our kind of uh, Eclipse team and, and JVM, you know, focus, uh, you know, uh, teams. So can you go help out with that? And I'm like, sure, I get to work from home. I don't have to travel on the road that much. So I eventually uh, took that job for a couple of years and really enjoyed my, like, you know, Red Hat's one of those few companies that's just like really nothing bad to say about them. Like they were fantastic. Like I think they took care of their engineers extremely well. Uh, they were very open and transparent about everything. Just fantastic company, uh, you know, all around. It's going to be interesting to see how this uh, Red Hat and IBM merger plays out because I was uh, I was at both companies and let's say they're very, very different cultures, <laughs> extremely different cultures. Yeah, so I think, uh, I think we're just weeks away, maybe months away. I saw that they uh, got the final approval from I, the, uh, the Europe, uh, European commissions or whatever. And so, yeah, well, I don't know. I, I think the Red Hat uh, people, I think they're a little nervous, but I don't know. But I've said, you know, I've been in, I did not, did not work at Red Hat. I worked at IBM. I just said, you know, I mean, it's, it's fine. I think it's going to be fine. I don't think people are going to come in like the first day. I think, let me say, I don't know what will happen in the future. I don't think anybody does, but I don't think, uh, I will say this. I don't think anything happens on the first day. Like there, it'll take a while for it to settle out and what's going to happen. That's my take. I I think you're right. And like using my experience at IBM, at least with, when I was with Tivoli, uh, you know, there was this kind of thing where like, you know, when Tivoli first got acquired, it's like, you know, they used to host like, it was like weekly beer bashes yeah. or whatever, right? Okay, we're like, you know, we're doing some beer and barbecuing. Eventually that became monthly once they came under yeah. IBM and eventually it, was, it, it went away. But maybe <laughs> so, that's a good thing because Tivoli, as I remember, they had their own building here in Austin. Like yep. they actually had their own area. I, I think, you know, they had a lot, as far as I recall, they did a lot of things independently. So maybe yep. that's a model. Like back to yep. like the idea that nothing will change day one. I think you can maybe look at it like, Hey, Red Hat has his campuses and what North Carolina and they have like yep. the strong work from home stuff. So probably initially it maintains, you know, as it is, but then over time there, there, there is a change is inevitable. I will say, but I, so I think you have, there's plenty of runway for everyone though, to figure out if they yep. like where they're going to end up in IBM or maybe they need to do something else. I'm personally thrilled. I think it's good for for IBM. Like IBM has a long storied history of surviving under very different, you know, tumultuous times and and leaders. Uh, you know, Red Hat's been a fantastic company. And and honestly, like I don't think people give enough credit for IBM's like open source support. Like I mean, they basically kickstarted the whole like you know uh, Linux thing, right? They threw like a billion dollars into that with the whole like you know uh, IBM loves Linux campaign. They basically started. They started the Eclipse Foundation. They chart. They changed the whole you know tooling industry. They've helped start CNCF with you know Google and other folks. So they've been heavily involved in open source for for many years because they definitely see the value in you know open source to level the playing field and also just just better for their customers. It's a better way to innovate. So. Yeah. 
Um, well, I think, I think we can summarize this as change is hard. Change is hard yeah. for everyone, but it's going to be okay, Red Hat people. I think you're going to be okay. <laughs> I think uh, it'll be. It's going to be fine. But more, you know, back to your story here. So you're at Red yeah. Hat. And then, of course, the most logical thing that I would expect <laughs> you to do, I didn't even know this, so I looked at your LinkedIn. You then go to Twitter. And yeah. I'm just like shocked. So, I mean, I need to know the whole story here. One, yeah. what did you do at Twitter for everyone? And yeah. then how did you get this job? I mean, it sounds crazy to me. Yeah, so it was an interesting time. So I was actually very happy at uh, Red Hat. Like, I, I love my time there. It was great. Like, the best place to kind of be in, in engineering, in my, in my opinion. Just like smart people, you know, all over. Uh, you know, just like any, you know, engineer working on stuff, you get pinged, you know, by companies randomly. Hey, come work here, or, you know, do this. And, you know, most of the time I ignore them. But, uh, you know, this was pretty interesting where someone from Twitter reached out where they, they had two problems. Um, one, they were, uh, you know, still a very young organization. I think at the time they had maybe like a, a hundred or a couple hundred engineers, right? Still very kind of timing, uh, you know, small, small, small company. But they were going through uh, a thing where they, uh, they're a bunch of, they're a Ruby shop, right? For, for many years, uh, they were starting to transition to the JVM, right? I think they picked out, they picked up a company, uh, I think it was from, um, I think it was called Summize, whatever, that basically provide like search support for Twitter. And it was a, basically a Java Lucene type, you know, uh, type based app. Yeah. And they actually found it to be, you know, fairly, uh, fairly, fairly good thing, like fairly performant. They were fairly impressed. And they're like, you know, the JVM's not too shabby. And, you know, they also had some folks at that time, you know, messing with Scala and, you know, you know, another kind of, you know, wonderful thing that, you know, that you could do on top of the JVM with these different kind of, you know, languages and DSLs that you could do. And so, you know, when they reached out, they're like, you know, we need help with, uh, a, we're doing a lot of Java. You have a ton of experience there. You could definitely help with tooling. And then the other thing is they, they needed help basically someone to like, you know, act as an adult, you know, in terms of supervision for open source It's like they were a using a ton of it. Uh, they were also open sourcing a lot of it, but you know, and part of that part of that experience, like they were also open sourcing like secrets, credentials, like not really thinking of like <laughs> there's there basically no process right. uh, in this at all. And so, like, yeah, we just need some help and adult supervision here to kind of a like let's have a strategy of like what we open and why we open it, uh, and b let's like just make sure we don't open source credentials anymore. It's a little bit embarrassing. So this is before all the automatic fancy GitHub tooling that exists now. Kind of. <laughs> Say, are you the reason that the fail well existed or are you the reason all our Twitter accounts got hacked at different times? <laughs> no, no, I mean, part of the fail well uh, being killed, I think, was the move to like, I mean, bless Ruby's heart and, you know, kind of the Ruby virtual machine. But it, it was it was a bit of a mess. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, you could say you know, that. JVM yeah. for all the hate, you know, Java gets is a very high performant, you know, well performing uh, thing. You could definitely make comments on on, on the language. Uh, but, uh, it is what it is. So that I kind of, that's how I got my kind of foot in the doors. Like, you know, Hey, let, you know, help us with tooling, right. help us, you know, become, you know, a little bit more open source friendly, get some process in place. And, you know, honestly, the model they wanted to copy a little bit is, um, you know, Google has this notion of like an open source program office that, uh, Chris DeBona runs, you know, call it an OSPO. And basically it just provides like, you know, discipline, policy, automated tooling for just ensuring that, you know, all your open source ducks, you know, are in a row and you're actually open sourcing things with purpose, not just for, you know, shits and giggles. Mm -hmm. So which I'm trying to remember. So were you involved? Like, was which guys built some container stuff and spun it out of Twitter? Was it, am I thinking Mesosphere yeah, so, or am I thinking like which? Yeah, no, no, that was no, definitely it. So, so that we, was all uh, happening kind of probably about the time you were there, yeah, right? No, I, 
No, absolutely. Absolutely. So we were uh, quote unquote adopters of container orchestration before it was cool and, you know, uh, you know, very hipster tech, you know, these days with everyone on the Kubernetes train. But so Twitter had a problem where, you know, we were essentially, you know, running everything in our own data centers. Right. And, you know, we're kind of going the traditional way where you basically, uh, you know, uh, you know, let you partition out machines for specific purposes and run VMs on there. It's like, here are my database machines. Here are my caching server. Here's, you know, here's where my, you know, rails front ends runs. And, you know, what happens is, uh, you end up, uh, essentially wasting a ton of resources, right? Cause you know, you know, maybe your caching servers that you have dedicated use a ton of uh, memory, but not so much in terms of, uh, storage and CPU. So the idea was we had a lot of folks, um, that used to work at Google and they're like, oh man, like we would really like to do Borg, but like Google's never going to open source that. So what can we potentially, can we build something on our own? And, you know, the process at the time was um, some folks had friends that were working at um, Berkeley's Amp Lab, which is kind of the home, kind of this kind of cool technology that developed over the years from like Spark came out of there. Right. Uh, actually, Mesos kind of came out of there as a, as kind of a, a research project to basically, you know, uh, use more efficient, you know, usage of resources using, you know, essentially container containerization technology. Right. And so we basically brought in that uh, research team from Berkeley into Twitter to help build it out for Twitter's needs. And we eventually migrated everything uh, to Mesos. It worked extremely way, extremely well, uh, you know, saved the company tons and tons of money. Uh, and eventually what happened is just like any other kind of, you know, you know, Bay Area, you know, San Francisco thing. They're like, this is a really cool project that, that we built that we've open source, uh, it would be maybe cool to start a company around this. And so Mesosphere was kind of spun out, um, of Twitter. Um, you know, other companies have done this, you know, like LinkedIn did it yeah. with, uh, Kafka and Confluence. So it's like not a, you know, yeah, yeah, uh, it's enough adoption, yeah. right. And it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. People do it. So it's always, inter it's interesting. I, that part you said about like, Hey, they had some guys at Google. Cause that, that seems to be like the, the link. It's like, Hey, I was at Google. I use this oh. Borg thing and I want it. And that seems to have like spawned you know, obviously that spawned Kubernetes itself, but it spawned a bunch of other projects kind of as an aside to that. Oh, definitely. Like, I mean, we had a lot of, uh, we, we tended to write a lot of, uh, tools that engineers loved at Google that weren't available in open source land. And so we just like wrote different variations of them. So like Mesos mapped to Borg, uh, we had a tool called, uh, pants, which was kind of our like monorepo focused yes. build tool, which was, uh, essentially Google had something called, uh, Blaze internally, which uh, they didn't open source, but eventually they did open source it and called it Basil. So Basil's oh, okay. kind of that, but Red Pants, Facebook actually had a, an equivalent called Buck that they did. So, so, so it's like, what happens is you have all these crazy ex Google engineers, like I really like my tools that I had at Google, but nothing's available in open source land. Let's go rebuild it. So we rebuilt a ton of them, um, you know, at, uh, at Twitter that we've open source, you know, through some stuff to like the Apache foundations with some of it, we just, you know, opened up on our, our repo, but, uh, I think it definitely helped change the, uh, the the face of kind of infrastructure. You know, I don't think Google would have done Kubernetes or CNCF if uh, if Mesos wasn't starting to get more popular along with Docker. I, I felt that they they may not fully admit it, but I think they were a little bit worried that like, oh my gosh, you know this you know container orchestrator, you know this is kind of how we run infrastructure. Uh, but we don't have any say in kind of the you know influencer governance of the project. Maybe we're going to do our own 
kind of take on things. Yeah, and, it's, you know, it's kind of funny because it's like they kind of maybe popularized it, but they kept it closed, right? So everyone's like, hey, we're going to go do this, and we're never going to rewrite it again. So we'll do it open source. And then that sort of loops back to Google, like, whoa, wait a minute. We can't have all <laughs> these guys using using different tools. We're going to, you know, so let, let me open source our stuff. So it's kind of interesting, yeah. that cycle. So Yeah, I mean, the Google's process was generally, hey, we'd write a white paper on it. And basically, you know, engineers would never necessarily be able to open source what they work on. I mean, Google's pretty good about, like, they're a good open source citizen compared to the yeah. best companies. Oh, definitely. definitely. So, well, hey, before I'm, we get off to Twitter, so did you? I, I mean, we've got to do some celebrity stuff here. I mean, were you, were you, and Ev, <laughs> you know Ev Williams, you know Jack Dorsey. Yeah. Were, were you in the meetings? Like, was this during uh, a yeah. hatching Twitter book I read where it was just like, just, yeah. just some kind of anarchy, chaos? Like, what, yeah. what was going on there? Twitter was a fun, I mean, I, you know, from someone that spent most of his career in like enterprise, you know, tech, like, yay, fun, enterprise sales, goodness sell you some access manager, identity manager. Uh, Twitter was great. Like consumer tech is amazing. Like we had celebrities roll, you know, through the office all the time. You're just like, you know, working on something and like Snoop Dogg rolls by and you're just like, this is just a very strange uh, environment. But it, it, it was fun. Uh, it was, uh, it is, Hatching Twitter, by the way, is a good book and it is fairly uh, kind of, you know, accurate how most of the stuff went down. I mean, there's all sorts of different kind of battles that happened at Twitter from like, you know, actually a long time ago, there was a huge discussion of like, do we go the like centralized advertising, you know, model approach, or we do like, you know, decentralized distributed, you know, type system. And, you know, obviously centralized, you know, ads kind of one off, you know, you know, you know, won the battle long term. And, you know, Twitter now is a, you know, multi-billion dollar, you know, company that's, you know, fairly doing well, finally profitable, which is nice. And, uh, whether it's good or bad for the world, I, I don't know. I think it's a tool. Uh, I definitely have mixed feelings, uh, <laughs> given kind of like the political situation. I think I think it cut, like a tool it cuts both ways. Like you know, we always thought of it. At least when I joined, I was like, you know, I think the the world does deserve a tool that like you could get messages out everywhere from 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 anywhere, right? Like mm-hmm. the whole like kind of revolutions that were going on, like with Arab Spring. I'm like, you know, this is kind of a cool potential use for a tool, but you could also see how it's used for propaganda purposes, right? So it's just a, I, I have mixed feelings. I still think it's a useful tool. I think you just need more um, tools in place to understand if the information that's coming is actually like real or from a trusted source. And I think that's kind of a, an issue a lot of these social you know, media platforms uh, face today. Yeah, well, cool. That's, I mean, it is cool. It's a fascinating company in general. So it sounds like an interesting time there. So you do yep. that for a while, and I think that brings us up to... In fact, I even need to understand this. It sounds like you have, even now, you have two comp- <laughs> two jobs, because at least like you're like dead. So you're the CTO of the CNCF, and yep. in addition to, or is it the same job, you're also working yep. for the Linux Foundation. So how does all this work? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I spent about five years at Twitter. It was fun. You know, company grew from, I think it was like a couple hundred engineers to, I think, like 4,000 people before I left. I was just kind of like burned out a little bit and, you know, was going to go take some time off, uh, you know, with my, with my wife, uh, at the, at the time. And essentially during that experience, uh, the Linux foundation reached out, uh, Jim Zemelin, who's kind of the executive director over there. He's like, Chris, you know, you know, um, you know, we're, we're starting this new effort with Google, uh, you know, you know, Kubernetes, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of familiar with Kubernetes a little bit. I'm like, it's a little bit janky compared to Mesos, but I think it has potential. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, we want to build an open source foundation around that. I'm like, oh, cool. I've always wanted to kind of build an open source foundation from scratch because 
you know, I had, um, you know, a lot of experience with the Eclipse Foundation, the Apache Foundation, bringing projects like Mesos, Parquet over there. So I'm like, this sounds like an interesting opportunity. And, and kind of the other parallel effort at that time was, uh, if you remember the container wars, you know, the whole like uh, Docker versus Rocket CoreOS thing, there was a parallel initiative that started along with CNCF, which a lot of people don't realize, called the Open Container Initiative, which basically yes. standardized mm-hmm. the notion of what a container is. So right. like a lot of people don't, hear about the project much because it's actually been so successful that like now all the container runtimes all support it. It just likes transparently supported. So people aren't worried about getting locked into a specific, you know, image format or container runtime. And then I think that with, you know, CNCF kind of being a good steward and home for, for Kubernetes has kind of, you know, uh, put a lock in the space of like, this is actually a fairly stable space to, you know, develop and kind of bet your company on. So, so I got offered basically, I don't see, I, I got kind of suckered into the job because I, you know, I was burned out. Like, you know, every time you work at a startup, it's just like crazy hours, you know, you know, Twitter was growing like, you know, like bananas. We're just hiring people all the time, you know, redoing our career ladders, like figuring out like what to open source. It was, it was just a lot of work. And I was like, I just need like a little break. And so Jim is like, you know, non-for-profit life is going to be great. Totally not like a so startup. Easy. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's, it's going to be great. Like we have 30 vacation days a year. I'm like, Oh, that's, that's definitely like, totally interested in that, you know, lifestyle. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, you know, I, I joined to kind of start both CNCF and OCI and it basically turns out to be just like another like startup, right? Like, you know, we, we, you have the container wars, you know, which was dealing with all those kind of, you know, Docker, you know, politics back in the day. And then, you know, CNCF and Kubernetes, it's just been kind of like a rocket ship. You know, we grew from, you know, I think we started with, uh, just, just one person, me as staff, uh, and I think we had 28 members when we first announced it, announced it. Um, and now like we have 430 something members, you know, we're, we're doing conferences that, you know, uh, have, you know, almost 10,000 people at it. We have a over a little over 30 projects now, uh, about 30 employees also. And all of this basically in, in about three years. Wow. So it's just wow. been like a crazy uh, you know, ride basically trying to unify the industry. Like I was always sold that containers and orchestration was a big thing, was going to be a big thing. I don't think there's like a, a better, more efficient way to really run infrastructure at scale, especially with, with resource utilization as kind of your primary motivating factor. So I knew it was going to be a big thing. I thought Mesos may have potentially would have been done better, but I think you know, I think CNCF and, and, and Google and, and kind of that initial set of folks did a really good job laying a truly open vendor neutral community and actually try to get a lot more people involved in the project where I think Mesos, uh, Mesos's main issue is sometimes you could kind of uh, gerrymander projects at the Apache Foundation where kind of one company just dominates too much. And, and that leads to trust issues where I think Google and a lot of the initial like, you know, I, IBM Red Hat folks did a really good job in, in making sure the the organization was, was built properly. Right. So what is, I mean, so for everybody that maybe doesn't know, like, so you're, you've been on since almost the beginning. So what is yep. like your day to day? So you're, you know, you, you, in some ways you, 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 you sort of don't have a product or you have all the products, I guess it depends on how you want to look at it. So, so what, what do you do as the CTO day to day? Like, what are you doing? Yeah. I mean, I mean, honestly, the, you know, so one interesting difference between like, I think a lot of people don't realize like between you know, a lot of people are familiar with like the Apache Foundation or, or some of the organization. We actually have a full-time professional staff that helps our projects with like technical writing, uh, developer advocacy. Uh, you know, uh, we run events for them, like something as big as KubeCon to as small as, 
PromCon. So, you know, my, my, you know, my role as CTO basically is to first and foremost, make sure our projects and maintainers are, are happy, right? They're getting the level of support, you know, they need, uh, you know, to make sure their communities grow and they maintain kind of a healthy, you know, ecosystem. Um, you know, I also do kind of a lot of, um, you know, scouting for potentially new and interesting projects, you know, funny enough, uh, I'd actually don't have the authority to accept projects in CNCF. Right. Uh, could be nice to run as a dictatorship, but we are a very neutral, well-governed open source foundation. So we kind of have an independent technical committee and board that decides which projects go in and so on. But I do kind of a lot of, you know, scouting and teeing up of of what's uh, going on. Because there's the three phases. Maybe just go over what are the three types of projects to be in the CNCF, right? There's three stages, aren't there? Yeah. So like, you know, if you're familiar, you know, with the kind of the, the crossing the chasm, you know, book, right? There's there's kind of like, you know, early innovators, you know, uh, late majority, you know, all that fun stuff. So we kind of have stages that kind of map map to those. So we kind of have this sandbox level for projects. And those are kind of like Sandbox is there for experimentation. Like it's a very early place for something that our technical board and community believes that we should invest in potentially and just give them a neutral home. Um, so that's kind of very early stage, early innovator stuff. Incubation is for projects that are a little bit more serious. Um, they've grown a little bit. They've matured a little bit. Um, they're potentially meant for companies to experiment with production usage. And then uh, we have a graduated level where it's for like, this is something that like you could literally bet your business on and like it's highly vetted. It's a very well-run community. Uh, there's very minimal bus factor. Like there's, it's a very diverse, you know, set of maintainers and uh, stakeholders. So it, it is uh, kind of how we run. And honestly, like Sandbox, uh, going back to Sandbox a little bit, uh, we do expect half the projects to potentially fail. Like it, it's kind of like almost like you almost think of like a VC model where, you know, right. it's like, make some investments in some spaces. Some of them aren't going to do well. And some of them would potentially, um, you know, uh, you know, rise to incubation and graduation, um, right. over time. So, so I think probably what people want to know is how do they get in front of you? If they've got a project that they think it's important, they want to get into the incubating stage. What's the process? How, it's how all does open. That there's a, there's a repo, uh, go to github.com slash CNCF. Uh, and call TOC. you directly. I'll put the phone number in there. Yeah, no. you, can put my, you, can put, you can put my phone number there, one hundred percent. So the uh, um, yeah. So what so, are you looking for? I guess what what catches your attention? Because I think that's what people are always interested in. Because Kubernetes, I, mean, I should say, I always say Kubernetes is a shortcut to CNCF. But to be more accurate here, I think you know there's all these things in the CNCF, and there's lots of different projects, and people are always trying to figure out what's next. So what catches your attention these days? So from my perspective, it, it's, uh, you know, initially when we started CNCF, we kind of had a very simple cloud native definition of like, it has to somehow deal with like containers, orchestration and scheduling in, in, in some fashion. Right. And, and essentially, uh, that's kind of what was our initial focus, right? Like we, we brought in projects like, you know, Prometheus, which was useful for monitoring. We brought in projects that were, uh, like container runtimes, like our, like good old container D rocket friends and so on. And so we, we have expanded our scope a little bit. So like, you know, a lot of people sometimes ask what cloud native means. And, um, and we basically expanded the definition to uh, include more than just that. So it's basically, you could pull it off our GitHub repo, but, uh, I, you know, it's essentially cloud native technologies are all about, you know, running, you know, dynamic uh, apps that work on public, private, hybrid clouds, uh, you know, containers, service message, service meshes, microservices, 
are all kind of canonical examples uh, mm-hmm. of those. So like, you know, we started to expand with the service message with like Envoy as a project, Linkerd. Um, we're doing a bit of policy management um, also. So things like open policy agent. So we've, we've kind of expanded our scope because, you know, to, to actually run this stuff in production, you're going to need more modern, um, you know, uh, monitoring stuff, policy uh, management and so on. So okay. Um, okay. overall, like, you know, we invite everyone to come to our community and propose a project and we'll see if it's a fit or not. Like it's a completely open run process. The meetings are available. All right. Well, I'm just I'm going to editorize. Here. I, I don't want anyone to work on any more service message. No more service uh, mesh. That's done. I'm closing the door on all those projects. You think like, so? I just I don't know. Every time I have to like learn more about it, I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is this is uh, good taken. All right, so let's um because I know you guys just had the big announcements. So let's maybe like a little grab bag here. So you know we got the big projects. I think everybody knows about them, but let's just like quickly go through. Obviously, Kubernetes container orchestration, Prometheus, pretty much everyone talking about it for monitoring. Envoy, yep. Core DNS, Container D, Fluent D. So let's yep. once and for all, because I think the originally we, the reason we we started talk is, talking for once and for all, you can straighten me and the rest of the world out. Envoy <laughs> versus Istio. Just just give it. I know, I know it's out there. Just give it to me again. Give it like oh what? What exactly? Yeah. How do you describe the relationship between those two things? So, uh, you know, I, I will definitely refer you to the, I think, canonical uh, blog post by Matt Klein of the difference between a control plane and a data plane. But like Envoy is a data plane. It, it, it's the bit pusher, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it moves the bits around. Uh, control plane is Istio. So Istio basically controls a fleet of envoys and allows you to maybe add, you know, policy to it, some type of governance, uh, you know, telemetry information from the envoy. So that's really the big, the big difference, you know, data plane, bit pusher, uh, control plane handles policy and governance. So I even think of Istio a little bit as going back to our access management days and identity oh, yeah. management, you know, you get in there. I always tell people like, Oh, you need some security. You want to get in here and authenticate everything. You need a little Istio. That's what, that's like, that's it, how I like to think of it. Tivoli ICD <laughs> and access manager 2.0. That's right, guys. Out. Let me get out my Tivoli slides. Okay. This is what Istio <laughs> does. No, I don't do that. But, uh, <laughs> but, but that's how I like to think of it. Right. I was like, this is how I think of it. All right. We'll put the blog post in there so people yeah. can uh, definitely, no, definitely. Uh, no, it's, uh, it's all these old, like, you know, all these old technologies and projects, like sometimes like, you know, I, I wish there was a notion of like, like a retro, uh, tech talk conference or something where like you could bring up like maybe the old Tivoli diehards, the old OS two folks, the small talkers. And just like, I think we just do a bad job mm. of conveying lessons from like the previous generation technology. We have, to- actually, it's funny you say we have been kicking around the software defined talk conference that we're going to start. It's going to be called legacy conf. Right. Where we take and all it is, it's all the technologies, but like 10 years ago. Right. Yes. So let's go back to it's like that's all we talk about. People are like Windows 2008 migrations. That's what we talk about. Right. And we talk about Java and we talk about Logi. Oh, Nagios. There's a whole section on Nagios. Right. We just like all these yeah. technologies. And it's like, here's all the stuff that you're probably yeah. dealing with right now. But in this conference, like Kubernetes and stuff, they don't even exist yet. It's like we don't oh. even like we don't even know about that. We don't even talk about that kind of stuff. So mainframes, uh, I would totally frame, everything's access management. You name it. It's just nothing but the old stuff. And it's that's that's uh, we're gonna get it going. That'll be maybe we, you know what we'll make that a CNCF conference. That'll be another one of your conferences. That, uh, uh, I think the, I think the Linux Foundation would definitely potentially be that's interested. Right. Honestly, I think kind of like. Uh, you know how like, you know, bands like old school bands like, you know, like Aerosmith charges just like a ton of money for tickets. I think Legacy Comp could charge 
a pretty penny. It's like old school bands. And then we're also going to have a, 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 what's the other thing we're going to have? Like a personal carry, uh, you know, a backpack section. Because that's what everyone wants to talk about. We're going to have like a whole session just on, you know, <laughs> personal carries. Like, how do you do it, right? So, you know, it's going to be great when we get it going. All right, well, listen, before we run out of time, because I know you got to go yep. here, maybe just give yep. us a couple things. Like, what's under the radar happening around NCNCF, whether it's a project or initiative that, you want more people to know about that maybe doesn't get all the highlights of all these other things we've been talking about. Uh, I think I'll, I'll leave it as, as two things. So like one is, uh, I, I think the Envoy project has really kind of revolutionized how, uh, the reverse proxies out there kind of work for like, you know, Nginx and, you know, all these kind of old school ones were, were, were not built for a dynamic cloud native environment, right? Until Envoy came on as like, you could update, envoys on the fly there's none of this like i'm gonna go hack my index comp shut things down reboot it right so i think what's happened now is almost all of these projects are starting to offer dynamic apis to kind of update them to kind of be cloud native and what's interesting is envoys kicked up a new effort called the uh i think it's like the universal data plane api project where they're trying to kind of standardize uh these apis across like envoy nginx some of the commercial offerings out there from like F5 and, and, and other friends. And I think that's like a huge, uh, amazing effort. That's kind of, it's kind of new, but also flying under the radar that that would just be awesome for the industry. Kind of like, if you look at Kubernetes, like Kubernetes essentially is kind of an API server that happens to run on all the public and private clouds out there that basically allows you to build custom apps through CRDs, in, in my opinion. I think Envoy is going to do the same thing through that uh, UDPA effort and kind of bringing together all the different uh, you know, data planes uh, out there. So uh, I would definitely pay attention, and I, I'm, I'm happy to kind of send you I think, they, I think they blogged something about it a while ago. So I'm right, happy yeah, to send me the link. I'll put it in the show notes. All right. So final question. Maybe it's a yep. big one. Maybe it's a small one. But just, you know, kind of philosophically, there's like yep. Kelsey Hightower. And I don't know. Some of the other thought lords out there. You know, they're always yep. like posting these short tw- tw- tweets, funny enough, from your, on your old platform, Twitter. And it's like, yep. they'll say something like, Kubernetes is a platform for building platforms. You should not be, yep. you know. Another, and it's kind of like, you don't worry. Don't trouble yourself developer about knowing all these things but then there's of course there's just like everyone trying to do their job they're like i don't know i was just told we got to move to the cloud and i feel like i should learn this so so like how do you think about this around like what is kubernetes you know ultimately the problem is trying to solve and what do you think like a developer getting into this like where do they start what should they really know to get into this this game yeah i know so i mean i actually do agree with kind of the you know the the thought lording out there with you know kelsey and and joe beta also very similar kubernetes really is a platform to build platforms so similar to like kind of like the jvm is a platform and you have you know a bunch of languages built on it right you generally don't uh, directly interface you know with with the jvm per se right i think kubernetes needs to get to a point where there are different opinionated approaches to install you know applications if you look out there there's things like Helm, there's the operator framework from Red Hat, there's this crazy folks um, in Seattle, uh, Palumi is kind of, they built like this crazy DSL, essentially that you could write, instead of like dealing with the wall of YAML, you just have this very nice, you know, nicely, <laughs> you know, scripting language that you could, you know, build apps with, right? Uh, I think, you know, over time, you'll see more programming languages get built in kind of Kubernetes, you know, native awareness and, and support, and it, it will just be a better experience. I, I think we if people are still writing like walls of YAML in a couple of years, I'm going to be very, uh, you know, disappointed. <laughs> uh, I, I think, you know, Kubernetes is finally stable enough. Where we're actually seeing a, a large ecosystem of different kind of tools and approaches 
uh, being built. And you know, like honestly, the last few years for Kubernetes has just been making sure that the whole industry from the major public clouds all over the world, the hyperscalers and also the private clouds all support it, you know, by default, you know, CNCF runs this crazy Kubernetes conformance certification effort. And we have like 90 plus, you know, uh, cloud slash products that are all, you know, uh, conformant, which was, which was, a uh, quite an undertaking to do over the last, uh, you know, a few years. So how should folks get started? Um, we provide a free introduction to Kubernetes course on edX.org. I think that's like step one, just like get the basics, understand like, you know, what a pod is and all the basic terminology. Uh, and you'll kind of get off a good footing. There's a great book by Kelsey, Brendan Burns and Joe called uh, Up and Running Kubernetes, which I it was one of my uh, favorite uh, books out there. But, um, you know, uh, also for KubeCon, we post all the videos and all the different, you know, sessions online on our YouTube channel. So highly go poke around there. I think there's some great um, content out there. Uh, I've seen other people just like build uh, their own mini cluster. It's like, I'm going to go get a bunch of Raspberry Pis and uh, <laughs> stitch them together to learn how to, you know, run Kubernetes on them. There's actually some great tutorials out there from uh, Alex Ellis uh, from OpenPass fame that's stitched together. Uh, if you're too lazy to stitch them together, there's actually a company out there called Pico Cluster, where you could just like <laughs> kind of like buy one, like a fully, fully Raspberry Pi set up Pico Cluster that just be delivered to your house. So you don't have to there set it go. up. That's what, who doesn't need one of those? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, like screw like compiling, you know, the kernel from scratch anymore. I'm just going to go get my Pico cluster delivered to the house fully, fully set up. Um, but yeah, those are kind of, that's kind of my tips for folks. Yeah. So plenty of stuff. Yeah. We call that the Matt Ray approach. Matt Ray is always talking about how he's doing something with raspberry Pi. He's like, Matt, you just gotta get some more hobbies. This is is crazy, (laughs) man. Um, all right, listen, we got to get you out of here. I know you got to go. So, well, where can people find you, uh, out there on the internet? Where should we find you? No, no worries. I definitely, uh, you can definitely find me on Twitter, you know, definitely, uh, since I've spent some time at Twitter, I have a short Twitter handle called, uh, CRA. So feel free to follow me. Uh, you know, there, there's a downside with short, short Twitter handles, by the way, uh, CRA also stands for the Canadian revenue agency, which is like the, uh, it's like the, it's like, it's like the IRS of Canada. Uh-oh. And let me tell you, Canadians get very angry sometimes <laughs> during tax season. I'm like, Canadians just pay your tax benefits. You get like health insurance and stuff. Be nice. So that's a downside of a short, uh, Twitter handle, but you can find me mostly on Twitter. If not, uh, you know, just, uh, uh, My last name has a lot of information on there. And, uh, if you go to cncf.io, we have all kind of the stuff linked there. So, um, you know, I've been a long time kind of, uh, you know, listener, you know, so of, of, you know, software fine. So I'm glad to kind of have an opportunity to tell a little bit of my story and what I'm uh, working on. So I think you guys do, a. Uh, it definitely makes my uh, plane uh, rides a lot more entertaining, uh, at least. Well, good. We're glad you enjoyed the show. And you know, we'll have you back on. And you can explain more about uh, all of this uh, to us because uh, we, we tend to – sometimes we get it wrong. Matt Ray gets it right mostly. Kotan and I yeah. get it wrong a lot. Hopefully, uh, hopefully we could see you at KubeCon. So we're, we're, we're going to host over 10,000 people wow. in San Diego. Where, in so that's San Diego? Where, where, when is that one? Is that uh, in, uh, Late November. Late I don't November. remember. All right. Yeah. Oh, good. Man. Good cities. Week before Thanksgiving. Good, yeah, yeah so. good cities. I like that. All right. Well, everyone register for that. Go to KubeCon. And if this is the first time you've ever listened to this show, you can subscribe at going to softwaredefinedinterviews.com. You'll find this interview and a whole bunch of other interviews. And if you want even more to listen to because you're flying to China like Chris, you can go over to softwaredefinedtalk.com and hear our weekly roundup of all the latest enterprise news. And with that, Chris, we thank you for being on the show. And we'll talk to you next time. Awesome. Thank you.